This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Shriver. We're here to talk about books that change the world and change us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we're going to begin our third episode on Shakespeare's iconic Romeo and Juliet. Uh, if you remember back in week one, we discussed briefly Shakespeare's life, and then we began to explore this idea of what makes something tragic. And you proposed, Christy, that in a tragedy, the uh, protagonist must be noble and in a sense, he or she must be better than us and undeserving you know, of the fate that he or she has suffered, like we saw in Oedipus or Antigone. But Romeo and Juliet are different. They're not traditionally classic heroes. Uh, they're not noble leaders fighting mythical beasts or defined kings. Uh, you can't imagine Chris Hemsworth, who uh, we all imagine holding Thor's hammer, playing a character like Romeo. <laughs> no. And in a similar fashion, it's questionable that Romeo and Juliet's death is truly decided by fate. They are teenagers making decisions in the ways you'd expect teenagers to make. Uh, you pointed out that half of this play is very comedic, mostly for that reason. And in comedy, uh, we laugh because we think we're better than the fools were watching. Uh, and really, the parts we've read so far have mostly been comedic. And the, the nurse is funny. Romeo is as love-struck as any 14-year-old high school freshman. And his friends are like any friend group that you'd find at Sonic and Memphis. And uh, in fact, there is something lovable and maybe even high school musical-like in how the first half of that play is constructed. I agree with that. And since you mentioned High School Musical, I, I think I can see Romeo as a young Zac Efron reciting poetry <laughs> to Vanessa Hudgens. That would have been a great remake. I wish they'd thought of it. Uh, the only thing dark in the first half of this play is all the foreshadowing about death. Even the fight scene is fun and lively and definitely not deadly. Everyone walks away with a big scolding, something like you would expect a Disney principal and a, some oh. sort of special to do. 
Uh, but today, we're going to see a darker turn in the play because we're going to get to Act 3, where Romeo kills Tybalt and things go awry. Yes, they will. Just a little literary review. As you recall, if you've listened to our previous episodes, specifically if you listen to this series on Lord of the Flies, there was a man uh, by the name of Freytag who created a diagram to illustrate how drama is traditionally structured. Some call it Freytag's Pyramid, Freytag's Triangle. Honestly, most Americans, we call it the plot diagram. So dull. But anyway... Freytag claims that Shakespearean drama has the hero meet his adversary in the third act. It's the turning point, the climax, that moment from which the hero can no longer retreat. It often reveals, though, a a hero's weakness or weaknesses in a tragedy. And every bit of that we're going to see today as we trace this story all the way through the climax. By the end of scene one of act three, there is no more musical feel. (laughs) I know. There's no more levity, even though we still can relate, all of us, no matter our age, to the things that we see going on in the play. But before we get to that turning point, there's a few more things I think we should pay attention to in the first two acts. So let's go back and see what those are. Uh, true, and and to set it up, last week we entered uh, slightly into the area of politics, which is not something we think about normally when discussing Romeo and Juliet. But you contend it is the politics that creates the tragedy, at least in part. And the basic argument of last week's episode is that in Verona, the adults who live there are rotten, and the town itself is the impetus for the tragedy. It's full of petty people. Uh, or as you said, adults don't take seriously their roles as leaders. They don't develop a culture of building, but instead students uh, are indulged and engaged in idleness. And of course, any school teacher will tell you, teenagers with nothing to do is always a <laughs> recipe for disaster. Always. And we notice that the prince is weak. He's indulgent. He doesn't have a backbone to rein anyone in, and this is a terrible flaw. He's he's just not a strong person. It's a rich, comfortable place to be, and so a feud easily perpetuates into something that feels petty and meaningless. We feel that it's petty and meaningless for one reason, because Mercutio, the prince's nephew, feels no hesitation in taking his best friend, Romeo Montague, into a party and crash it in the house of the supposed sworn enemy Mm. after we've all been told no fighting on pains of death. Oh, my. Uh, It doesn't seem that that anyone's thinking about murder and danger. I mean, they might get in trouble, but that risk elevates the element of of the fun. (laughs) A little drama in a somewhat otherwise boring place. And um, even when Mr. Capulet sees Romeo there, he calls him a fine young man and tells Tybalt to leave him alone. And Romeo isn't even asked to leave. Uh, I'd say there are people in Memphis who have worse feuds than this. Yes, that's it exactly. Verona is just not a serious place in this play. And Tybalt isn't mad about anything. He's just one of these angry, bitter people, a bad person looking for trouble. 
he gets mad basically because he sees Romeo getting away with something. It kind of reminds me of Auburn and Alabama fans. Oh my. <laughs> now you're on thin ice. <laughs> well, for those of you outside the United States, there is no place in the United States that I know of where American football is taken more seriously than in the great state of Alabama. <laughs> and if you want to talk about feuds, that's legit. That's legit with millions of people every year getting out of hand Verona style. Gary, tell us, to prove my point, the story about the tumor tree poisoning oh, that happened a God. few years ago. And you'll see what I mean. These uh, people feud. They do. and uh, Well, Auburn and Alabama are two universities in the same state. And uh, if you go down there, everyone in the state has been raised to love one and hate the other. And uh, every year they play each other. And now Alabama Auburn also have two of the greatest football programs in the entire nation. So the Iron Bowl, which is the game where they play each other, uh, is incredibly tense. And uh, back in 2010, there was a famous incident when an older gentleman, not even a student, <laughs> grandfather's age, but an Alabama fan, he snuck onto the campus and he famously poisoned some of the renowned, iconic 100-year-old oak trees on the edge of Auburn's campus after Alabama lost a football game on Tumor's Corner. Uh, well, the state blew up. and the, the man whose name was Harvey Updike was sentenced to three years in prison and a fine of $800,000. Um, That's serious. Yes, and uh, not unlike what happens to Romeo, for, for a spoiler, he was he was banished from Auburn. Banished. And actually lived out his life in the state of Louisiana, safely away from the state <laughs> Alabama. <laughs> well, on that note, I I think I know a couple of well, more than one Alabama parent who would consider banishing their son of or daughter if they married someone who had attended the opposing university. But this is kind of the feel of Act One, where we are in this world of feuds, and we're going to transition from this world of feuds into this private world of teenagers. And of course, it's the language of love that has become so memorable over the centuries. Such fun wordplay. These words are famous because they're beautiful and they're complex. Everyone knows, did my heart love till now? I never saw true beauty till this night. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Obviously, teenagers don't talk like this. <laughs> they're not quite that clever. Although I will say, I did get a sappy love poem once written by a boy in the sixth grade. Oh, really? Hmm. <laughs> Do tell. Well, truth be told, I can't remember his name. He wasn't in my class. But he drew a unicorn with a rainbow on tissue paper. And then he glued it to another piece of tissue paper. And he poured baby powder in between the tissue papers so it would smell. And he told me in the poem that I was as beautiful as a rainbow. <laughs> that actually is good. <laughs> so how did you react well, to that? Well, I'm embarrassed. I was not brave like Juliet, and my friends laughed at me. So I hid the letter, never talked to him again, ran away. There's no poetry here. <laughs> That's what happens in real life. Romeo yeah. and Juliet is now real life. So oh. anyway... Uh, uh, that leads me to bring up a difference between our youth and the youth during Shakespeare's day, which isn't at all what you're describing. I mean, Shakespeare's lines uh, between these two is very progressive. I mean, 
fathers in the audience would not approve of a daughter like Juliet. <laughs> Students, especially girls, were treated very strictly, and they were not given a lot of freedom in terms of dating. And it's interesting here that uh, Shakespeare draws a world where teenagers are glamorized for basically living a life of secrets and lies and confessions in the dark. And I had no way of knowing, but I wonder if this wasn't a fantasy for a lot of young adults during that day, just like it is today. And in this play, um, these characters defy the expectations of their parents and their community, their cultural heritage uh, to define themselves as lovers even if just to themselves, uh, in the world of arranged marriages, even today, that that's just simply taboo. That's true. And there lies the universality of this story, the beautiful lines that have charmed boys and girls for centuries. The fantasy that I don't have to marry some stodgy, predetermined oaf, live out my days fantasizing over pot roast from Kroger. <laughs> I can dream of a sexy, love-struck, beautiful man coming to my window and comparing me to the stars and the moon. Oh, as you have had many times by me, right? (laughs) Yes. Well, we ended reading those famous lines last week, and if you didn't catch them, go back and re-listen, because those lines are really worth hearing over and over again. This week, we will begin by tearing down that beautiful image that we just constructed. And I want to put a different spin on this very famous balcony scene, unlike the starstruck one we've been glamorizing here for a minute. The feminist interpretation of the scene actually is one of my favorites. There are those feminists who contend that what we are watching in this famous love passage, all this loving discourse between Romeo and Juliet, is Juliet seeing herself as an independent person and exerting power over her own life circumstances the only way she knows how. She is creating for herself an escape route away from the arranged marriage with Paris. If you remember, right before that dance, her mother is trying to sell her on this old guy, Paris. Even the nurse chimes in, and floats the idea that he's a man of wax. Well, Juliet is not interested, and she goes into that party probably in a scary state of mind. I mean, her future with this old man, and remember, Shakespeare has done nothing but reemphasize that she's 13 years old. Lo and behold, she's been told she has to marry the old guy, but a beautiful, charming boy is there. And all she has to do is reel him in. (laughs) Of course, women seducing men isn't new. It's not even a new plot line. But the way Juliet seduces Romeo is not traditional. And it's Shakespeare's characterization of Juliet, which is also untraditional. I referenced this last week. Look how strong Juliet is when she's talking to Romeo. She's not taking that usual approach of feigning ignorance. She's approaching him, matching him line by line. She is his intellectual equal at every point. None of this, you're so strong and I'm so weak, Romeo, Romeo, nonsense. Uh, She's going for it. (laughs) Well, of course. I mean, it seems to work because that same night, he jumps the fence and he recites poetry into the night. Oh, yes. The famous blason. This is something that Shakespeare is 
famous for making fun of. He does it in other places. But I want to explain what this is. During the Elizabethan era, courtly love was all the rage. And there was this trend called the blazon. Uh, and don't think that we started trends in the 21st century with TikTok. Apparently, they've been around for a moment. But anyway, <laughs> guys would write these really cheesy, far-out comparisons of the girls that they love, and they would describe their bodies in these romantic and poetic ways. But they were very cheesy, and that's what Romeo is doing here. He's written a blazon, and this is he's certain. He's serenading Juliet with this hyperbolic, cheesy description of her, of her body, really. He's going all Elizabethan TikTok trend. I don't think you can really put those two things together. (laughs) I think you can. She's more fair or beautiful than the sun. Her vestal livery, that's her virginity, is sick and green. He's telling her to cast it off. Her eyes are brighter than the stars. Her cheeks are shinier than the stars. It's hyperbolic. That's what cheesy is. It's over the top. It's repost worthy. <laughs> well, we've, we've definitely been reposting it ever since. I mean, how many uh, ninth graders memorize those lines? And, it's even in Hannah Montana. <laughs> oh, my. Well, and that's all fun. But I want to point out something else, of course. And I'm no director, but... Uh, the way this is written is very ambiguous as to whether Juliet hears him or not. I mean, a director could easily have uh, executed this either way. And maybe she doesn't see him and he's talking into the night, but it's very easy to read this. Maybe she does see him and pretends she doesn't. So she can spout off all those very forward lines. I mean, this girl is not running away. Uh, look at what she says to him. It's it's bold and very unlike the uh, traditional junior high move. <laughs> it's not like what I said. Yeah. She says this, deny thy father and refuse thy name. I mean, that's very bold and very untraditional. And in normal marriages, and especially in that time period, the girl gives up her name to take the man's name. And she's inverting the wedding vows here. Uh, this is a very big ask of Julia. You drop your name for me if you dare exactly and notice there's also a lot of bird imagery that comes out of these two he's going to talk about wings bringing him there he calls himself a pilot but one time she calls herself a falconer which is the person who tames Hmm. the falcon here's where i'm nesting oh Ah. no a painful (laughs) pun yes juliet is setting him up to help her fly the coop. Oh, that's two bad puns. You've you've reached your limit. Uh, you can see it uh, as Romeo's in the clouds and Juliet wants to join him there and they can fly off together. Oh, you're joining the pun game. <laughs> exactly. And she needs help, real help. I'm not sure anything would frighten a 13-year-old girl any more than the prospects of being trapped into a sexual relationship with an old geezer you haven't hardly met. Honestly, look how different these two talk. Romeo is very romantic. He's not being practical because the nature of the world doesn't demand that of him. He can be dreamy. But Juliet, look how it's reflected in her language. She asks him very down-to-earth questions. She asks him how he got in. She references the fact that he could die if he's caught there, although I doubt that's true. But she's bold and direct. Dost thou love me? 
There's another sexual reference. Romeo asks, Will thou leave me so unsatisfied? To which she responds, not with an explanation about her situation with Paris, her parents, and all the things that he might need to know, uh, but it's more of this reeling in. I think we should read it. It's kind of fun. Oh, wilt thou leave me so unsatisfied? What satisfaction canst thou have tonight? The exchange of thy love's faithful vow for mine. I gave thee mine before thou didst request it, and yet I would it were to give again. Wouldst thou withdraw it? For what purpose, love? But to be frank, and give it thee again. And yet I wish but for the thing I have. My bounty is as boundless as the sea. My love is deep. The more I give to thee, the more I have. For both are infinite. The nurse calls, Juliet! <laughs> I hear some noise within. Dear love, I do. Anon, good nurse, sweet Montagu, be true. Stay but a little, and I will come again. If that's not really, and I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, blessed, blessed night, I am afeard. Being in night, all this is but a dream. Too flattering sweet to be substantial. Three words, dear Romeo, and good night indeed. If that thy bent of love be honorable, thy purpose marriage, send me word tomorrow by one that I'll procure to come to thee, where and what time thou wilt perform the right, and all my fortunes at thy foot I'll lay, and follow thee, my lord, throughout the world. Madam, I come anon, but if thou meanest not well, I do beseech thee. Madam! By and by I come to cease thy strife and leave me to by grief. Tomorrow will I send. So thrive my soul. A thousand times good night. A thousand times the worse to want thy light. Love goes toward love as schoolboys from their books, but love from love toward school with heavy looks. Well, any thoughts? Is she really an amen? Uh, well, I think uh, you're trying to destroy the world's greatest <laughs> love scene. Uh, well, maybe not. It's just interesting. This is a very hot and steamy dialogue. It's not sweet and innocent like we saw between Emily and George in our town. There's passion here, and I believe there is self-interest here. And I don't believe it's just on the part of Juliet. This is a very different relationship between a man and a woman that's expressed here. Shakespeare has made these two teenagers very grown up. And in some ways, what we're looking at is a negotiation. We see sexual love. We see sexual power. I think it's still love, but a love of a different sort. Eros. That's what the Greeks called it. <laughs> well, I guess with that note, we uh, fly off the balcony, uh, enter into scene three, and meet the friar, the other adult in this play. And, and I'm going to predict that you're not going to be kind to this man of the cloth. Correct. You know me well, darling. <laughs> what is up with Friar Lawrence? First of all, this guy has zero spirituality. We don't see him at any time in prayer. He doesn't talk of the Bible. He talks of nature, virtues, man's virtues. But nothing is centered around the attributes and concerns of the things of God. 
He does call out Romeo for being a little hasty with wanting to marry Juliet one day after they met. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Uh, we should read those lines. They're kind of funny. Okay. Holy St. Francis, what a change is here. First of all, we should all start saying Holy St. Francis way more than we do. That's a great line. <laughs> Holy St. Francis. Is Rosalind, whom thou didst love so dear, so soon forsaken? Young men's love then lies. Not truly in their hearts, but in their eyes. Jesu Maria, what a deal of brine. How washed thy sallow cheeks for Rosalind. How much salt water thrown away in waste to season love that of it doth not taste. The sun not yet thy sighs from heaven clears. Thy old groans ring yet in my ancient ears. Lo, here upon thy cheek the stain doth sit of an old tear that is not washed off yet. If e'er thou wast thyself and these woes thine, thou and these woes were all for Rosaline. And art thou changed? Pronounce the sentence then. Women may fall, but there's no strength in men. <laughs> That's kind of true. Uh, I guess I'll be Romeo here. Let me read his lines. Okay. Thou chidest me oft for loving, Rosalind. For doting, not for loving, pupil mine. And baits me bury love. Not in a grave to lay one in, another out to have. I pray thee, chide not. She whom I love now doth grace for grace, and love for love allow. The other did not so. Oh, she knew well. Thy love did read by rote and could not spell. But come, young waverer, come go with me. In one respect, I'll thy assistant be. For this alliance may be so happy proved to turn your household's rancor to pure love. Oh, let us hence. I stand on sudden haste. Wisely and slow, they stumble that run fast. His thinking is horrible. He in no way, it's clear, he in no way believes Romeo is in love. And there's no indication that he's looking out for Romeo or even Juliet's best interest. This man is a terrible friar. Yeah, I told you so. <laughs> he's willing to use these children. Maybe he thinks it's for the good of the community. That's what he's saying. Maybe there's nobility there, but as a mama, I'm horrified. And as a daughter of a minister, I will go far to say that most ministers take the marriage sacrament much more seriously than this. There is no sanctity here. Well, it's also a point to make that this plan would never have worked. <laughs> Probably true. Right. Shakespeare hints in a prologue what most of us would assume to be true, that uh, if these two had gotten away with even getting married, the parents would have lost their minds with anger and probably have either kicked them out of the house or forced the friar to annul the whole thing. And never mind all the talk of graves is more foreshadowing. And yet this is the friar's plan. Let's just get them married and see what happens. In scene four, which is where we are now, we are back to Mercutio and Benvolio and all the sexual innuendos and jesting that goes back and forth with those two. Sure, wit, follow me this jest now till thou hast worn out thy pomp that when the single soul of it is worn, thy jest may remain after the wearing solely singular. It's just silly. All this alliteration, the double entendres, you can hardly read it. But the more you catch, the funnier it is. 
Well, it, it for sure takes a couple of reads to pick it up, especially for me. Uh, but what we can't help but pick up is the focal point between Romeo and the nurse. I mean, uh, the wedding has been arranged. This afternoon, they will be married at Friar Lawrence's cell. And what is more important uh, than that for Romeo is that the nurse is to get a rope ladder for him to get up that balcony and consummate this marriage. <laughs> the important things in life have to be handled first. Let me add two more points before we move to scene five. The nurse has given another really famous line here. Uh, it's actually more famous today because it was used in the theme song of that TV show, Pretty Little Liars. To make keep a counsel if, well, well, that's the way they say it. The way that Shakespeare says it, says it is this. To make keep counsel putting one away. They say it, to make keep a secret if one of them is dead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Another great Shakespearean line people don't know. That's true. The other point to note, back to my Juliet is a feminist. Listen to what the nurse tells Romeo about Juliet's situation. Well, sir, my mistress is the sweetest lady. Lord, Lord, when twas a little prating thing, oh, there is a nobleman in town, one Paris that would fain lay knife aboard, but she, good soul, has a leaf see a toad, a very toad to see him. I anger her sometimes and tell her that Paris is the properer man, but I'll warrant you, when I say so, she looks as pale as any clout in the versal world. Doth not Rosemary and Romeo begin with the letter? Ay, nurse, what of that, both with an R? Ah, oh, mocker, that's the dog's name. R is for the... No, I knew it begins with some other letter, and she hath the prettier sententious of it, of you and Rosemary. That is, would do you good to hear it. Commend me to thy lady. Aye, a thousand times. Peter! <laughs> well... What does that line mean? Rosemary and Romeo, doth not Rosemary and Romeo begin both with a letter? I know. First of all, the, the nurse is pretty ignorant and she can't keep anything straight. Uh, but honestly, I haven't brought up a lot of this because there's just so much of it. But it's more of the foreshadowing. Rosemary is a symbol of remembrance. It's used at funerals mm. and weddings too. But we're supposed to note that. Shakespeare at every point constantly reminds us that Romeo and Rosemary do have a connection. They're heading for disaster. Mm. Well, scene five of Act Two is a disaster, but it's of a different sort. And, and all this talk of Juliet being mature kind of dissipates. And she's impatient and rude and demanding. And this is a totally different Juliet than we've seen before. I agree, because here she's panicked. She wants this marriage, and she wants it now, which, of course, she gets. Act two, scene six. They're married. Let's read it out. I'll be the friar, and then I'll switch over to Juliet. Okay. The friar says this. So smile the heavens upon this holy act, that after hours of sorrow chide us not. Amen. Amen. But come what sorrow can, uh, it cannot countervail the exchange of joy that one short minute gives me in her sight. Do thou but close our hands with holy words, then love devouring death. Do what he dare. It is enough that I may but call her mine. 
Well, let me just stop there. That should be enough foreshadowing. He should just swallow yeah. his stop there. But he doesn't. And Firelorn says this. These violent delights have violent ends, and in their triumph die like fire and powder, which as they kiss consume. The sweetest honey is loathsome in its own deliciousness, and in the taste confounds the appetite. Therefore, love moderately. Long love doth so, to swift arrives as tardy as to slow. Uh, beyond the foreshadowing, he's actually being totally correct here in some amazing imagery, like uh, fire and powder, which is they kiss, consume. It's, it's a great analogy. Fire and powder blow up together, even if you call it a kiss. And then this idea that the sweetest honey is loathsome and it's not good, but it's bad in its own deliciousness. I agree. And it makes me angry at Friar Lawrence. He knows better. He's willing to warn them all the way to the moment that Juliet walks in that room. And then he allows them to blow themselves up with this fire and powder stuff. This is not a definition of parental love. It's supporting more indulgence. And it's definitely not holy. I think one of the greatest comments Shakespeare makes, um, at least to me, is this idea of what it means to really love an adolescent. I mean, in this play, no one loves these kids, of course. We see it more with Juliet than with Romeo because uh, Romeo's parents are nowhere to be found. But look here. I mean, the role of the friar is to protect them, and he is... In his self-serving, he cowardice, he fails. And this takes us uh, into the next act. And as Freytag tells us, the turning point in the play. Oh, yes. So we, we start with the best buddies, Mercutio and Benvolio are out. Tybalt has been hunting down Romeo and finally has found him. And Tybalt's lines are short and aggressive. Yes, and Romeo embarrasses his friends. He's obviously, for, and we know the reason, there's your dramatic irony at work, we know he's not interested in fighting, but the way he talks to Tybalt comes across as cowardly, at least to Mercutio. I do protest. I never injured thee, but love thee better than thou canst devise, till thou shalt know the reason of my love. And so, good Capulet, which name I tender as dearly as mine own, be satisfied. That's not aggressive talk. And before we get into the fight point, I did want to point out something here. And I basically overlooked it, even though it's been going on for the whole play, because there's just not enough time to comment on everything that's worth commenting on in this play. But I wanted to point out something that we love Shakespeare for, and he's actually so famous for. And of course, that's the rhymes and the patterns and the iambic pentameter and the way that he supports meaning through the beat of the language. Uh, remember, I told you that almost this entire play is an unrhymed iambic pentameter, which means it's ba-dump, 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 and we can hear it a lot. Well, a lot of times, Shakespeare wants to, you know, take it up a notch, and so he makes it rhyme, and that's what we hear when we hear Romeo and Juliet talking. They're always rhyming, and it makes it more romantic. Well, here, we're going to see Shakespeare do just the opposite, we, saw, we see these lines between Robio and Tybalt, and they're talking in the traditional iambic pentameter. But Mercutio, when he breaks in, he breaks the pattern, and he's not going to talk with the iambic pentameter. It's going to be flawed. Mercutio is going to speak in nothing, just like regular the way we talk. He's breaking off from the beat, and he says this, 
O calm, dishonorable, vile submission, a la staccato, carries it away, Tybalt, you rat catcher, will you walk? In a way, we see Mercutio is interfering, and Shakespeare supports this idea that it's not a good idea, not with by what he says, but by the way the words sound. It's just clever, and one of the many reasons we're all in love with Shakespeare. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, remember that Mercutio was not a Capulet or a Montague. He's related to the prince, and he really has no reason to fight, but he gets caught up in the moment, and he and Tybalt fight it out until Tybalt stabs him. And again, so many directors have done this fight scene so differently, but one thing we know from uh, Mercutio's dying lines is that Romeo got between him and Tybalt giving Tybalt the edge that allowed him to stab Mercutio. Exactly. And in Frank Zeffaretti's 1968 movie portrayal, he has Tybalt, like, looking shocked. Like, he didn't actually mean to kill him. It just happened. And it's a nice way to think of it. I mean, why would he want to randomly kill the king's nephew? Of course, Mercutio dies with the famous curse, a plug of both your houses. I am sped. He knows he's dead. But the fun-loving friend can't die without one more final pun as we transition from comedy to tragedy. Tis not so deep as a well, nor so wide as a church door, but tis enough, twill serve. Ask for me tomorrow, and you shall find me a grave man. Oh, my. (laughs) I know, it's sad, but it's kind of funny. The fun-loving friend... The one who dreamed up Queen Mab Hmm. is now dead. Well, uh, and Romeo thinks that too. And another side of Romeo comes out. Benvolio says, Oh, Romeo, Romeo, brave Mercutio is dead. That gallant spirit hath aspired the clouds, which too untimely here did scorn the earth. This day's black fate on more days doth depend. This but begins the woe others must end. Here comes the furious Tybalt back again. Alive in triumph and Mercutio slain. Away to heaven, respective lenity and fire-eyed fury be my conduct now. Now, Tybalt, take the villain back again. That late thou gavest me for Mercutio's soul is but a little way above our heads. Stain for thine to keep him company. Either thou or I or both must go with him. Thou wretched boy, thou didst consort him here. Shout with him hence. This shall determine that. And of course they fight and Tybalt falls. Romeo has to run away. Benvolio's the last man standing and he has to end up giving an account for what has happened. But before we discuss Benvolio trying to explain what has happened, I do want to point out Romeo's final line before exiting the scene. Read that out for us, Gary. Oh, am I fortune's fool? That one. Yes, it's actually a famous line. He's just stabbed Tybalt. He's lost his mind. He stabbed Tybalt. And look at the line. Is he really fortune's fool? Most people would say, well, you lost your temper. You killed a guy. But Shakespeare is going to put this twist of fate on it, which brings me back to the fate we've seen all throughout this play from the beginning when Shakespeare calls them star-crossed lovers. And at the ball, Romeo says there's some consequence yet hanging in the stars. Uh, Do you think Shakespeare's putting the tragedy on fate, or is he questioning it? That's exactly my question. 
After Tybalt's murder, everyone shows up. Prince Aeschylus, the Montagues, the Capulets, and before anyone can say a word, Miss Capulet is calling for Romeo's blood. Then Benvolio has to tell the story about what's happened, and I don't think that they can blame fate. <laughs> well, no. He tells the story pretty fairly. I think he comes off pretty objective. Well, I agree. And when the prince asks, who now the price of this dear blood doth owe, Mr. Montague thinks it's enough to let Romeo off the hook. He's going to say, well, not Romeo, prince. He was Mercutio's friend. His fault concludes, but what the law should end, the life of Tybalt. Hmm. Well, the prince had said that if they fought again, that there would be a death penalty put in place. But we can see here uh, that he doesn't have the stomach for that. And clearly everyone else knows he doesn't either. And hence all the back and forth trying to influence his decision as to uh, what should happen to a clearly guilty party. I mean, there is an aimlessness in this prince and there's no real leadership. I mean, he he may could justify his decision as being an act of mercy, but it doesn't resolve the conflict between the two families, and it barely pacifies one side, and uh, neither the religious leadership or the political leadership. Yes, and here I want to point out, no one here looks very level-headed. Impulsivity has been a reoccurring motif throughout this whole play, and it's going to actually turn into a dominant theme. Everyone is so impulsive. Obviously, Romeo and Juliet are impulsive, but so is the friar. So are the parents. So is the prince. Really, the prince, the wise move here would have not been to rush to any judgment and just sit on it. But no, he makes a judgment. Romeo is banished. And what is to happen next, we will see, is one reckless, hasty decision after another for the rest of the play. (laughs) And of course, death and banishment is the news the nurse delivers to Juliet when uh, she comes in with the rope ladder for the secret honeymoon. And uh, Juliet has been going on and on about the nighttime coming and Every groom wishes his bride were just sitting around saying, Come night, come Romeo. <laughs> uh, come thou day and night whiter than new snow on raven's back. Come gentle night, come loving black-browed night. Give me my Romeo, and when he shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars, and he will make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun. I mean, can we say a little bit about cheese (laughs) you're talking about? Well, for sure. And notice all the dark and light imagery. They're huge in this play. We saw that on the balcony scene. We see it here again. The nighttime is the world Romeo and Juliet get to flee to. They're together at night. They have secrets in the night. Isn't that the reason all teenagers love to stay up at night? Nighttime is the time for fairylands and dreams. And well, we'll talk more about that next week. But at night, no one of, is watching. But of course, the nurse is going to crash this dream with the next few lines when she busts in and says, He's gone. He's killed. He's dead. Of course, it takes quite a long time for Juliet because she thinks he's talking about Romeo. And this goes on and on until she can finally get the story out of the nurse. To which Juliet breaks into an incredibly articulate show of oxymoron, <laughs> basically wondering how such a beautiful boy could be a bad person. Oh, serpent heart, 
hid with the flowering face, did ever dragon keep so fair a cave, beautiful tyrant, fiend, angelical, dove-feathered, raven, wolvish, ravening lamb, despised substance of divinest show, just opposite of what thou justly seemed, a damned saint and honorable villain. O nature, what hast thou to do in hell when thou dost bower the spirit of a fiend in mortal paradise of such sweet flesh? Was ever book containing such vile manner so fairly bound? Oh, that deceit should dwell in such a gorgeous palace. Well, she is freakishly <laughs> articulate. Uh, and he's clearly beautiful. <laughs> and, of course, the nurse can explain it all with, All men are evil, and I need a drink. There's no trust, no faith, no honesty in men. All perjured, all forsworn, all not, all dissemblers. Ah, where's my man? Give me some aqua vitae. <laughs> Well, Juliet takes one minute to think through her present situation, and she makes a decision. She is not going back on her wedding vows. She's moving forward. Again, I want to make this point. Juliet is a modern-day pragmatist. Listen to Juliet process her options, and then basically decide that Tibble is not wrecking her plans. Hmm. <laughs> Will you speak well of him that killed your cousin? Shall I speak ill of him that is my husband? Ah, poor my lord, what tongue shall smooth thy name when I, thy three hours wife, have mangled it? But wherefore, villain, didst thou kill my cousin? That villain cousin would have killed my husband. Back, foolish tears, back to your native spring. Your tributary drops belong to woe, which you, mistaking, offer up to joy. My husband lives that Tybalt would have slain, and Tybalt's dead that would have slain my husband. All this is comfort. Wherefore weep I then? Some words there was worser than Tybalt's death that murdered me. I would forget it fain, but oh, it presses to my memory like damned guilty deeds to sinners' minds. Tybalt is dead, and Romeo banished. That banished, that one word banished, has slain ten thousand Tybalt's Tybalt's death was woe enough if it had ended there, or if sour woe delights in fellowship and neatly will be ranked with other griefs. Why followed not when she said Tybalt's dead, thy father or thy mother, nay, or both, which modern lamentation might have moved? But with a rearward following Tybalt's death, Romeo is banished. To speak that word is mother, father, Tybalt, Romeo, Juliet, all slain, all dead. Romeo is banished. There is no end, no limit, measure bound in that word's death. No words can that woe sound. Where is my father and my mother, nurse? Weeping and wailing over Tybalt's course. Will you go to them? I will bring you thither. Wash they his wounds with my tears. Mine shall be spent when theirs are dry for Romeo's banishment. Take up those cords, poor ropes, you are beguiled. Both you and I, for Romeo is exiled. He made you for a highway to my bed, but I am made, die maiden widowed. Come, cords, come, nurse all to my wedding bed, and death, not Romeo, take my maidenhood. High to your chamber, I'll find Romeo. To comfort you, I wot well where he is. Hark ye, your Romeo will be here at night. I'll to him, he is hid at Lawrence's cell. Oh, find him. Give this ring to my true knight, 
and bid him come to take his last farewell. Well, I think this is a good place to end for today. Next week, we'll see what some unbounded, reckless courage, along with a little bit of hapless planning, gets you. We've got a lot to cover, but we'll have to borrow (laughs) Romeo's wings and fly next week to the end of the play. (laughs) Okay, well, on that note, uh, thanks for listening today, and Please do us the great honor and hit the five-star button on your podcast app. That gets us uh, bumped up the ranks with the controllers of the interwebs. And uh, also share an episode with a friend and connect with us on the HowToLoveLitPodcast.com page and uh, find teaching materials and find us on Instagram and Facebook to chat. We're always ready to get recommendations for books that have changed the world and can change us. Peace out. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.